I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. And in this episode of the podcast, I'm chatting with Paul Hecker and Hamish Guthrie of renowned Australian design firm Hecker Guthrie, who are joining me in the Design Anthology office in Melbourne. Paul and Hamish, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to start by going back to the beginning of your careers and um, asking you to tell us where and when it was that you decided to become interior designers or study that field of, of design. Wow. Okay. We're going back a fair way. Now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I think we'll probably... Uh, we had a unifying uh, mentor, I guess, in in Dale Jackson. I think uh, who I'd met through are we a going friend back, of mine. Are we going back further? We're even going. Well, I don't yeah, know. Are we I, going back to? I was to thinking to maybe <laughs> childhood. When Child, was, there, was there an aha moment? Or, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if I start because I'm older, um, my it, it, it's interesting. I don't think there was ever particularly an aha moment. I don't think I was particularly creative. I was reasonably lazy as a child, but one thing I I always enjoyed was my own space. And from quite an early age, I was always quite particular about my my space. Then I had a best friend whose parents lived in a beautiful Victorian house. This is growing up in Adelaide. And um, I remember their lounge room really vividly. And it was white plush pile carpet and then green and navy. And it just struck me and I thought, it, going back, I think, what are those moments in time where I thought, when when did I become truly aware of an environment? And that was one of those moments when I really thought, this is a beautiful space to be in. Probably didn't think any more of it until um, you get to year 10 or 11. And I always thought I'd probably do law and then I realised I'd probably be terrible at law. And in some ways, I chose design as a default. I think I put law as my third choice and interior design and architecture as my first and second, kind of knowing probably I would get into interior design before I got into law. So it was never a burning passion. At that stage, it was just going, what would I what might I be interested in? And for lack of anything else, I chose interior design. What about you, Hamish? Uh, yeah, we could. Uh, it's slightly different than Paul's, I think. I, I grew up um, in a pretty creative environment. I guess I was immersed in it from a very young young age, um, which is kind of unusual uh, being the, kind of the son of a, a physiotherapist and a dentist. But I think they wanted to, I guess, live in a different different way. Or uh, so I think they they made a very conscious effort to put in a put us in an environment that was creative and very, um, uh, I guess, holistic in in terms of its its living arrangement. It was, it was a Steiner education we were kind of kind of part of and. Uh, we had the kind of ten acre block in in Wonga Park and the Alistair Knox Knox House. So I think, in some ways, I I almost took took 
the design and, and beauty and the craft and the art almost for granted that that was what the world was like <laughs> um, in that kind of little little bubble. And I think, yeah, in, in, in some ways it was only um, later, which I, I actually realised how important that was in terms of the foundations of me as a designer. I, I, like Paul, I was kind of umming and ahhing whether I should go down a, a more of a, a medical science background. Um, and I did pursue that at, uh, for a short period of time. But then I think there was, there was that kind of moment, and I think I did mention it before about, about uh, meeting Dale Jackson uh, through a friend I'd, I'd been, at, been at school with. And I think, yeah, I think he, he was, um, I guess, instrumental in, in uh, I guess, through, through our conversations about talking about, about design and, and the future of, of where that might, might, might kind of lead that... that kind of set me on a different different path so uh from there it was kind of moving into a into a into a building site to kind of get some kind of hands-on experience and uh <laughs> physical aspects <laughs> of, of working on a uh, a new construction of, of a build which again was really kind of fundamental in terms of understanding a, a different way of design and then also um yeah, through through work experience and, and trying to find a different way into into that that design. So it wasn't necessarily a traditional path into into design. That's interesting. I mm. wouldn't have guessed that from either of you, actually, considering the careers that you've had since. Mm. Um, but you you mentioned the offices of of Daryl Jackson, and that was where the two of you first met. Is that correct? That's right. In the mid nineties. <laughs> we the wish. Time right? <laughs> no, mid eighties. Oh gosh, my eyesight's I'll go, really I'll go bad. Okay, ages. I got the you go late. Eight. <laughs> I, I I moved to Melbourne from Adelaide in 1986. Okay, so the mid to late 80s. Yeah. Okay, so you've obviously seen quite a bit of change, uh, I imagine, since then. I would love to have you both describe the changes, perhaps in the design industry first, and then maybe design in Australia specifically since that time. Yeah. Well. Certainly, um, the change in interior design has been extraordinary. Um, I always think that there have been sort of a series of, of periods of interior design in Australia, and there's there was sort of pre-Jan Faulkner and the Sue Car, so pre-car design and Nexus, and that was interior decorators and working with an architect or what have you then. People like Sue Carr and Jan Faulkner came along in the early 70s and really sort of, um, I think, came at architecture and design very definitely from an interior's perspective. Um, and in some ways, when I came to Melbourne, there, were, there, there was only a handful of interior designers when I first came to Melbourne. There were guy Design, Carr... Nexus. Um, I'm trying to think that there, there, there were probably more than that, but but not many. Um, and really, as an interior designer, I came to Melbourne fully expecting to work with in an architectural firm, and that we would be there to assist the architect in some form or other to create spaces, but fundamentally led by the architect and um, directed by the architect. At the beginning of that process, that was very much working at Daryl Jackson's. Daryl was one of the few people, one of the few architectural firms that actually did employ interior designers and have an interior design department. Um, I think at that time it was still very much led by an architectural approach and the interiors were slightly secondary to 
um, to that. And it wasn't really until I'd been to the UK, lived there for a year or two, come back and was working on Crown, that suddenly, the, because it was a casino and the whole um, notion of a casino is that it is interior-centric, led by the interior, that you're suddenly working on a project for the first time where the architecture, it wasn't secondary to the interiors, but it was certainly, they were sitting side by side, that both were extremely important elements and that the interior didn't become this sort of secondary space. Um, since then, the interior design world has completely and utterly changed. The number of designers sort of in Melbourne and Australia, the diversity of what they're doing, um, I think the status that design has within the community, um, people's awareness generally around interior design and the importance of having a nice environment to live in or to be in, it, it, it's a completely different world than it was 30 years ago. Mm. Unrecognisable. Would you add anything to that, Hamish? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I don't know what that that is, and obviously kind of born out of much being a, a so being more of a I guess global community of, of design as well. And I think, yeah, we've certainly seen it through our, our clients of how much more informed they are about about design. And I think obviously there's still a long way way to go. And I think um, I think that's where we're I guess optimistic about about how do we kind of uh, facilitate that that development of design in in this this country. Because um, I think, yeah, there's there's an aesthetic, and I think obviously people obviously think think design can just be be an aesthetic, and I think we as designers obviously think of it as something much more holistic and more experiential uh, through through what we do. And I think I think from that perspective, I still think there's a fair way way to go. And I think we we draw parallels to a, I guess, a design community or a, a design culture like uh, like Scandinavia where, where it's so innate in the way that they live live their lives um, and I don't think we're quite quite there, <laughs> there yet um, but I think there's some really kind of positive things that are kind of coming through um, I think that's in the right. design community at the moment yeah. everyone here thinks of it as an aesthetic mm. where Haim and I again it was one of those sort of moments where you uh, literally a light bulb went on. We were in in Sweden, I think two years ago now, and we were staying in a beautiful hotel. We'd gone out for a walk. The ground was covered in ice and snow. And one of the things that we noticed is that every window, there was a beautiful lamp on in the window. So even though you're out in the snow and it's freezing cold, there was no sense of bitterness because every home looked like it was welcoming and beckoning. And it's those moments where you go, this isn't about interior design or this isn't about um, an aesthetic. This is about creating space that is warm, welcoming, where you want to be, that draws you in, all of these sort of things that I don't think yet we've worked out within this country what are those moments? What? How do we create spaces that aren't just about... We always say, if you fo just follow fashion, you're always going to be disappointed. Mm. No sooner have you finished something, then you go, oh, I wish I'd done that or I wish I could have had that. So it's as designers, I think it, think of it very much more of how do you want to feel in a space, mm. not so much what does it look like, because that potentially never changes. 
regardless of what's happening around you in design, if you always walk into a space and go, I feel good in here, then ultimately that they're the successes. I think, I think, yeah, certainly as a studio, I think we've matured through that, that process as well. I think, I think certainly as a younger studio, we were exploring many more ideas and many more aesthetics and many more, um, ideas of creating space. I think, through, uh, I guess the ma- m- I guess maturing as a studio, I think you get much more um, curatorial in terms of your ideas and your 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 palette of uh, materials and and the way of w- way of working. And I think that's I guess been reinforced about those things. And I like is that kind of critical idea eye of looking not only at the work of other other designers and and other other cultures and and the design embedded in those cultures but also about our own work we're kind of very critical about our own work and our own I guess where we want to be and what we want to be we're doing um so I think that I think is that I guess served us very well in terms of honing our own skills especially over the probably the last 10 years yeah to the point I mean, where it, we're really kind of confident and um and concise I think in what what we're doing it was like walking into this space and your space and and when you walk into it, the first thing I didn't think was beautiful this or beautiful that. The first thing I thought was this space feels wonderful. Mm. And that for me is the test. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. I, you know, I'm so curious to know how the Scandinavians do it. I mean, I'm, I'm such a big fan of Copenhagen. I haven't been to Stockholm in a while, but, you know, I completely agree with everything you're saying. And it's not just that sense of welcoming. They actually live with design. They live with because these timeless they, pieces. Because it's exactly that. They're not, about, they're not about the constant change. We still have a thing going, that was last year or that was three years ago or that was 10 years ago. And we still see it like clothing. We mm. still go, oh, you know, I want the latest and greatest. The Scandinavians, when you look at their homes, and what was really interesting, you go to a real estate agent window in Scandinavia and they will look very similar. You know, they're white spaces, they've got the classic pieces of furniture. But what you see when you start to look deeper is you realise that people have bought, you know, they've started in the 60s, they've started collecting pieces and they have been unwavering in their approach to their aesthetic. So that has allowed them to make commitments to really wonderful pieces of furniture and also a commitment to an aesthetic that they build up over a period of time. Mm. I think there's just a lot of ways of viewing where they they don't treat it like an immediate commodity, mm. you know. So I think that they have ways of viewing design and I think fundamentally also they have a real confidence and a real pride in what they do mm. and because of that that confidence means that they are they're not looking they're not seeking sort of lots of external um commendation they're not they're not looking for people to go this is fabulous they're just doing what they're doing um with a level of confidence and with a history behind them and it was interesting when Haim started talking about the idea that when we were younger we were probably we explored dip more. I think now we ex- still explore a lot, but it's not so much around aesthetic. It's around how to create spaces that feel differently or how do I interpret someone's brief in a more emotional way. So if someone says, I want to feel calm and 
um, thoughtful. How do we do that? How do we create a space that encourages a certain way of thinking or feeling? Whereas I think when you're young, and certainly I would say this about young interior designers that I look at their work today, is that when you're young, you're trying to find yourself, you're trying to explore aesthetics, and you want to really sort of feel part of the zeitgeist. You know, you want to be in there, you want to know what the latest colour is, or you want to know what's... Whereas I think... It's a bit about being noticed as well, isn't and, it? And being <laughs> noticed and win awards and things mm. like that. And I think as you get older, those things become less important. And then you go, well, if I'm going to continue, and one of the great things about design is I graduated in 85. So it's 35 years ago and I am blessed. And I can remember saying, probably when I had been doing this for five or six years, can I really be doing this for the next 50 years? You know, is this really? And you, and what's interesting is I've become more passionate, more excited, more thrilled by being an interior designer as I've got older, rather than becoming jaded and and um, sort of bored. And that's not because that's because my interests have grown, and because I'm inquisitive, and because the more you do, the the or the more you see, the more excited you become. But you're also become an editor. You, you're more focused about the things that you enjoy. So. Um, I don't even know what the question was then. <laughs> oh, we're way off the question. No worry about that. We, we do, are. But <laughs> it's so interesting, though. I actually want to ask you how important you think time is as part of your design process, because I'm I'm kind of getting the feeling that you know we're talking about the Scandinavians, and you know obviously there is I think a sense from people building a new house or renovating that they want it done straight away. So I would love to know, you know, how uh-huh. you think about that part of it. <laughs> well, certainly through the industry, time is becoming a, a, a very precious and rare commodity. Um, you know, it's being pushed all, all the way through client end, through, uh, through the builders and uh, developers. So, yeah, I think it obviously is um, adding a pressure into what would otherwise be um, a more considered design design process. Um, some of the times we can kind of fight fight against it. Other times we have to be part of the the process and and I guess have the commitment and confidence that we can navigate strong design through that kind of filter of of, of time pressure. Um, I, I I think it's interesting too because I think Hamish and I will often come to a design decision very quickly because I think that's the the skill of taking a brief trying to understand location, the architecture, the client, all of those things, trying to bring it together reasonably quickly and out of that forming an idea around what you think is the appropriate response. What's quite interesting is often a client start, I I kind of think sometimes we would do things very quickly (laughs) because we have an innate sense of how to approach something and how to go about it. But often it is the client who then spends their time vacillating and going, are you sure you've pushed it hard enough? What about if, what about if? And I looked at a job the other day, we were looking at a job the other day and I think this has been, this would have been so much better if the client hadn't been involved because every single time they had changed their mind and changed and and were, were, were unsure. And I go, we actually lost and the project lost. And I 
I look back on it and Hayme and I have those discussions around how far did you push? Do you get to a point where your client's going to hate you, but you do it in the interest of the job and you do it in the interest of an outcome? Or do you, is it imperative to take the client on a journey? So at every point through that journey, the client is on board with you. And I think the time, the timing, the time issue is really interesting because everybody wants things done quickly. But that doesn't mean the. the it, it, I sort of tend to find we're actually quite good at making decisions quickly. It's clients who vacillate, who aren't sure, and once there is a chink in the armor, then things unravel. So it's an interesting thing. I sometimes think the best ideas come out of very quick. Yeah. Not always, but 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 come out of very quick sort of processes. However. I think it can, yeah, too much time can foster procrastination. And I think it's too much money can give you too many choices, too much time can. Um, and I think it can create confusion and, and uh, people second guessing their ideas, you know, whether it's between us as a, a kind of design leadership mm. kind of group or whether it's uh, kind of filtering down to the to kind of the, uh, the more junior members of the studio who are implementing these, these ideas. So it's also that thing where clients lose confidence when they if, if you're taking them on a journey and it's a bit of a roller coaster then they're on the journey as soon as it starts to slow down then they start to question themselves they lose that interest they start to maintaining people's confidence and interest is often one of the hardest parts of taking them on a design journey especially because most people well when you're doing a home the process starts and it might be two or three years in the actual process of design, documentation and then implementation. So they might not be seeing an outcome for two or three years. Yeah, and maintaining expectation over a very long or prolonged period of time is a very challenging thing. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Well, and it is that thing where we haven't heard from you for three weeks. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's yeah. a normal part of the... We're you know, working. I'm, I'm feeling unloved. I'm feeling yeah. so... I mean, the, re but the reality is, yeah, we speak a bit about this as well. The design isn't a linear process as well. You don't start at, with this idea and then execute it so, so many months or so many years uh, afterwards. That ideas change, consi uh, considerations kind of change through the design process to, to lend new ideas into it or... To discount others, but um, yeah, I think one th another thing that's probably um, been learned, I guess, through our experience of working together as well, is that we it's a recognition of, of our different perceptions of time through a design process as well. That that Paul will work in a very different way than I, I work. Um, Paul's design responses are obviously much more immediate uh, than than often mine are. Uh, I probably need more time to, I guess, digest and I guess consider, and then kind of come back with a with a design response uh, after doing all that. But often, I think, and probably the encouraging thing is often we're we're kind of coming to exactly the same point of resolution, but just through a very different um, uh, journey. That's really interesting. Mm. And I think that's where we rely on each other because I I hate the pregnant pause. <laughs> And whereas I know Hamish is there also thinking about it, giving it, giving ideas real consideration, and often things will be an amalgam of both of our approaches. But I think there's a 
confidence or a um, certainly a confidence on from both perspectives that we've got each other's back to a degree. He will sort of I think I'm comfortable because I know Hamish is sitting there going, Paul, <laughs> please. <laughs> but in the same way as I go, come on, Hame, let's you know, let's start this process. And and so I think we we as Haim says, I think intrinsically I don't think Hamish and I have ever had a design argument in the sense that I don't think certainly from my perspective, I think I can be more immediate, but um And I probably need that immediacy sometimes. And in the way but that I work. Haim, I think I, I love it because Haim will go, Paul, that's been done or or we need to think about this more deeply. And I, I'm always aware that there's always that in the background as well as or he will come up with something I, I kind of get the ball rolling and then Haim will come up with something that is completely different and I'll go oh that's better mm. it's such an interesting dynamic and obviously the two of you you know work so well it's like when one plus one equals three I'm curious to know how that worked if it changed at all during last year when you were in lockdown and uh, were you working remotely the whole time we or? were yeah so how did how did that process go <laughs> Well, I think what was interesting is, from my perspective, Haim and I probably spoke a lot less last year than we would normally do. But I think because of 20 years of trust, I think we always try and we always say to our clients, when you get Hecka Guthrie, you get Hecka Guthrie. We don't divide the office down the middle. We There's always a sense that both of us are looking at whether there's usually one of us who who spends more time on any one particular job but we try always to have both looking at each job so that if we've missed something or if there's a better way then we we and having said that we also have a great team of designers who are there working with us doing exactly the same but i think during covid we 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 just trusted the fact that both of us we're not going to go too far off off piste. Mm. Yeah, I think we were certainly being challenged with a new way of way of working, like like most people. And I think we weren't particularly geared up for this remote um, way of working, even in uh, prior to uh, I guess the pan- pandemic. We we would probably wouldn't have envisaged that uh, we would kind of structure or be able to kind of structure the office in the way that we have eventually been able to do. Um, Yes, yeah, so I think you know, we've always been reluctant to kind of have people working remotely because there was a sense of losing touch with the design or or not having that ability to kind of communicate directly with the designer mm. and the inefficiencies that are kind of associated with with that. Mm. So we were suddenly kind of thrust into this kind of new environment and this kind of remote way of way of working that we kind of weren't geared up for, you know, from a technology perspective or just really kind of a communication perspective. So there was a lot of um, I guess, quite thinking, uh, quick, quick thinking, and you know, obviously facilitated with a, a great practice manager who managed to kind of navigate the studio through a pretty tricky situation. But um, yeah, I think underlying everything was this confidence and, and trust in the fact that although we weren't necessarily working in the same environment or we weren't necessarily having communication as much as we we would have, that um, that 
there was that underlying trust that I, I, I didn't go Paul. out and buy a new car. <laughs> um, I wanted a to. Lot of <laughs> a lot of people did. You bought a lot of ink cartridges, though. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I did buy a lot of ink cartridges. That's very practical. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was certainly kind of interesting from that perspective. But, it, but yeah, I was I paranoid think... about running out of ink in the printer at home. <laughs> <laughs> But this idea of, um, in some ways, you know, having to almost divide and conquer as opposed to um, having to necessarily work in a more traditional way that we had previously done where we had to be in the same room, we had to be talking to designers as a collective kind of group. Mm. Haim and I were the first people back in the office Mm -hmm. because I think from our perspective, a studio is exactly that. It's where people come to talk about ideas and throw things on, literally throw things on the table. And I think a Zoom meeting isn't that. You get things done quickly, you answer qu- queries, you answer problems. But trying to sit there and really have a, de- a design discussion, it worked, we did it, we, we had some beautiful outcomes, but I don't think they happened as easily as they might have. So I think moving forward, what we're saying is that we are happy now for people to work from home. You know, there's a lot of things that they can do from home documentation, scheduling and things like that. But the actual process of talking about design or those moments where we are sitting down and talking ideas around design, nothing replaces being in a room together and being able to read people's faces and and throw your hands around and, and go and get another cup of tea or coffee and all of those sort of things. I just don't think anything replaces that. And we had... Um, Monday mornings, we all get together now, and as we always did, and we always have one person in the office presenting design inspiration. And it's those sort of things where you're all in a room talking about sort of something that's inspirational. It's very hard to replicate that. Yeah, so much that learning as a as a designer as well about those conversations you hear in the, in the background or in the periphery as well. I think... Certainly, as, as designers, uh, certainly as, as a junior designer, it's, it's so, yeah, so much of that that kind of learning or that kind of extreme learning of, of experiences and and things like that are just heard around around the studio, even if they're not not spoken directly or you're part of the direct conversation. But just being I a, never want to see that tile again. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good point, actually. Yeah, yeah. you know, that, and they don't get the benefit of that on a Zoom meeting because mm. you're only dealing with the particular designer. So there is, as Haim says, there's none of that learning through osmosis or learning yeah. through through just seeing how other people interact. Yeah, and I think the, the I guess the physical aspect of what we do in terms of kind of finishes on on a table, being able to kind of move move things around, touch and um, and and see directly materiality, I think was was certainly different, and I think that probably suffered. I think we, again we couldn't wait to kind of get back into the studio to kind of pick things up again, to be able to kind of communicate directly with clients on around a table with real real materiality. I think that's such an important thing for when we present a, a concept from, from the outset that we're already kind of talking about that materiality or that kind of tactile approach to, to design um, and not having that there to kind of support these ideas other than through an image um, was certainly a, a challenge. Um, on the more positive side, I think, yeah, that, that idea of, again, we spoke about the kind of the time uh, variance between the way Paul works and the way I walked, I think there was some aspects of uh, of the lockdown which probably Paul found frustrating, which is that slightly more 
convoluted process of communication a slightly more um, anything to do with technology <laughs> anything where I have to press a button and if the button doesn't work immediately yeah, yeah and a more slight <laughs> like guys drawn out process I think because again I think things did slow I think expectation kind of kind of stretched out a little bit mm. in terms of what we could, could possibly deliver through that that period but like I said what Paul said, I think earlier, it, it, it actually, I think we delivered some great design outcomes through that 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 time, mm. and I think, yeah, for me, I think there was something about my personality which kind of gave me the time to think as well. Again, when the kids weren't wanting their morning tea or or <laughs> help with their kind of maths homework or whatever, yeah. that yeah, there was that kind of time to think in a more considered way without distraction. Um, to really kind of immerse yourself in in one project at a, at a time, and mm-hmm. yeah, I found that really really valuable. And I think haven't quite recreated that in the in 2021, but um, obviously there's there's aspects of that which we'd kind of like to I guess keep keep true and kind of keep keep integrating into the into the studio. Mm, that's yeah, that's really interesting. What um, you realise is you really need time to travel. So that's actually my next question. I mean, given that that's such a a huge source of inspiration for so many designers, and I imagine for the two of you as well, what's at the top of the list um, (laughs) for destinations once once Australia opens up again and it becomes safe to travel? Well, it's it's really interesting. I've someone said to me, you know, how was last year? I said, well, thankfully for me, it hasn't been too bad. And I said, I probably have missed travel the most. And if that's the thing that I'm, you know. God forbid that's the the worst thing. But what was what was interesting is I start sort of fairly early on into lockdown. I I was in the bath and I was googling business class seat reviews on YouTube, and I thought I'm going to go on a journey, but sort of vicariously suit through someone else's travel and just so I googled this review and it started in Sao Paulo and ended up in Addis Ababa on Ethiopian Airlines and at the end of it I thought that was a really lovely trip and I felt like I'd had the airport experience and I'd had the 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 the, the full sort of um lay flat experience in um Ethiopian air and I'd had the food experience and I'd had the Addis Ababa experience and it made me realise, God, there's a lot of the world. We, by default, I've always been, you kind of go to Western Europe, you go to North America, you go to Southeast Asia. Haim and I went to, on a sort of a business trip or, or a, 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 a trip to Brazil a couple of years ago, which was fun. But I, I realised I was very conventional in my, the, the, with the places that I wanted to go. And over the last year, I've started looking into places like Baku on the Caspian Sea. And so you, you, what's nice is when you don't travel or when you can't travel, you suddenly go, God, there's a whole world out there. And wouldn't it be interesting? And, you know, the Baltic, sort of places like Estonia or, or Bucharest or, you know, just places that aren't necessarily the conventional ones that you might have traveled to normally so it's given me time to think about where I might like to travel and how adventurous might I be I think Haim's slightly different because he had he'll tell you he had a trip planned which was amazing and actually when it gets down to it I quite like traveling with Haim because Haim does all the planning does all the itinerary and I just get up in the morning and go where are we going today and it's always going to be somewhere brilliant so that's great yeah 
So I do miss that. Absolutely. So where was it, Hamish? Where was the trip? Oh, there were, there were, I had, I had planned two. One was to Morocco and then one was through, um, in the South of Italy, through, through Puglia. So yeah, it was quite, there was an extraordinary hotel that he didn't even tell. I think he didn't want to tell me because I'm quite competitive. So if he tells me about a good hotel, he knows darn well, I'm going to be doing everything to get there before he gets there. And it's because you go and tell everyone. And I tell and everyone kind of, about it. And like I can't you do with your up. business class. You almost have the experience before you've even I know. That's there. exactly right. I <laughs> can't wait for the experience. It's almost been had before anyone's it's even It's like buying there. clothes. I tell so many people about the things that I'm going to buy that by the time I think about buying them, I go, oh, I'm bored with that now. <laughs> and funny. it still doesn't mean that I don't buy a lot of stuff. But I think, think of all the stuff that I haven't bought because I've got bored with it before yeah. I've even bought it because I'm telling everybody about what I'm buying. Um, and it's the same, it's, it is the same with travel as well. Oh yeah, you know. But um, there was a hotel in Puglia that is amazing that I am still going to try and beat home to. Oh, that sounds incredible. Yeah, well, it seems, seems like another world away. But yeah, yeah. But I think yeah, the other side of I guess being really grateful for being able to. I guess hold keep a studio kind of running through this whole thing, and I think you kind of have to check some of those kind of disappointments of not being able to travel mm. um, against all the amazing things that we've been able to do. Yeah, mm. and I think there, there's also something really um, nice about the idea of your world suddenly being very, very small as well. It gives you another completely different perspective on those things that are kind of important in your life, and I guess in a broader sense, important in your home environment or or more, most importantly, because our clients' home environments as well. And I think in a strange, I guess, twist of fate, I think we've never had our clients so close either. Mm. <laughs> that they're, they're all home. They're all kind of in the neighbourhood. They're all kind of contactable and they're all kind of um, a much more kind of intimate part of the design process but kind of working alongside them with. Mm. Um, so I think that's been really refreshing as well and I think brought, brought different eyes into 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 our projects um and that idea of what it is that's important to us in this in this time as well i think has been been um interesting that yeah be, being a, such a, a smaller world and uh whether it be your, your lounge room or, or your kitchen or wherever your life is kind of taking place it's really kind of distilling what is important in that environment to to give you kind of satisfaction enjoyment and um I have, and it's and interesting. Pleasure. I think this is the real test as well. Do you love being in your home? Mm. And I think both Haim and I have actually been blessed because we actually just love being in our own space. And it hasn't, I haven't felt prisoned, imprisoned by COVID only because I love my home. I love sitting in my kitchen. I love, you know, I'm more than happy to be there. Mm. That's so nice. So my final question, I feel like I could probably talk all afternoon, um, is, is still sort of, I guess, outward looking. And, and I wanted to ask you about some of the projects that you've done outside of Australia, because um, from what I'm aware, you're one of the few firms here that are actually working overseas. And I wanted to maybe hear if there were any, you know, real noticeable differences running projects between here and say, Hong Kong or Jakarta, to name a couple. And if there was anything out of that experience that, you know, you've learnt and, and sort of taken on board for, uh, you know, future international projects. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It, it, I guess if you look at, I guess, 
the way that people seek us out, they're seeking us for work that we've kind of done in Melbourne or, or Sydney or, or um, locally in Australia. I think it's probably less so the work we have done in, internationally. So I think it's, I guess from a client's perspective, that idea of you're importing design uh, into their, their culture or into their, their, their environment. And I think for us, it's very hard to kind of look back and, I guess, use a, a, a project we've done in the past as a reference to do something in, in, the, in the future. Because again, we are so much um, looking forward uh, in our ideas that we want to kind of challenge our own own work and our own kind of studio's work. Um, and often there is that kind of struggle, people kind of reference saying, no, we want, we want this project, we want that project, because they can kind of articulate something about it. It's not a a random appointment of design to take them on a completely different path. So I think from some ways there's a challenge there working remotely with, with clients. I think they often have a preconceived idea is about what we are going to give them or, or um, what we are going to deliver. And I think, yeah, we certainly want to kind of challenge that with every project. And I think the flip side is that when we go into those kind of environments like Indonesia or um, in Hong Kong or the like, we see opportunity so how do we kind of um, exploit the opportunities uh, in those countries to create something we can't necessarily create create here? You know, trades that um, you know, we with kind of stone or, or kind stone of crafts and metalwork in Indonesia, metal work for instance, that, that may be available in in countries like that we can't um, potentially kind of explore explore here. Or I think so, that's the primary the thing level. for us. I think what you realise is there is there is in the world today there are strong design communities everywhere. And one of the things, it was it was interesting. I was watching, um, I think it was Ukrainian, um, Ukrainians Got Talent. You know, like it's one of those kind of shows where you find yourself on YouTube and then you find yourself and you realise there is an alternate universe here. They look the same. They're dressed similarly. They're singing similar songs. Their whole culturally, they, they seem to be... It's like an alternate universe that is happening while we're here. There is another sophisticated sort of world that's happening that we know nothing about. And I think the joy of travelling or or working overseas is trying to understand what that might be and how we might slot into it. And as Haim says, how do we exploit those things that people do very, very well that maybe are things that we don't do so well here so that we can have fun on that design journey as well. Um, yeah, did... so they're instilling every product with a sense of place. And often, yeah, these, these clients and these environments, they're trying to almost do the opposite. They're trying to kind of create an environment that, that isn't necessarily what is in their immediate surrounds that, or, or that is kind of currently being kind of repl- replicated or referenced in their, in, their, in their environment. So I think for us, again, that's the other idea of how do we kind of make it culturally appropriate to those in areas yeah. um, through, um, I guess, exploration of yeah, what does it mean to kind of create an, a, a project in, in those places as a Melbourne designer, um, but again, working remotely and, and exploring ideas that are kind of more local related to those those areas it's it's it's, and it's not always we i I think to be honest i enjoy the work but it's far more challenging dealing with people overseas not being so intimately involved with the building process all of those sort of things It, it it certainly brings up challenges
Mm. We often don't get to fully document the project to, to the level we would document it here. So from there, there's already a slightly um, uh, distancing from, from the execution of, of the full full scope of the project. Mm. Um, and then obviously through the building process as well, we haven't got the ability to kind of walk onto, onto site on a more frequent basis. And I think sometimes there's things that you would you know, pick up, obviously, if it was down down the road road from here. But again, I think Having said that, I think we're, we're, we're quite accustomed to working in, in Sydney. We're accustomed to kind of working over in WA and, and beyond. So I think, yeah, I think, again, we're getting better at kind of navigating our way through these challenges. And I think, obviously, again, going back to your, your point before, I think um, everyone from, from clients through to builders, I think, are getting much better about working through this kind of filter of, of, of Zoom or, or Skype or, or whatever. And I think, yeah... I guess you know, there's obviously kind of takings from from there about, about how we're going to work in the future as well. Mm. Fantastic. Well, I know I'm not alone in saying that. You know, we're obviously very much looking forward to seeing what what comes next from the studio. So are we. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you both so much. It's been really great chatting, and um, yeah. Thank you. Good to have you thank on the you. podcast. Oh, Brilliant. Thanks. Thank you. Cheers.